3: This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, we talk with Anna Paquin, star of Flack, which premieres February 21st on cable channel Pop. Later, critics Daniel Daddario and Caroline Framke discuss TBS's Miracle Workers and Netflix's Umbrella Academy. Then, senior reporter Elaine Lowe will recap the first week of the Television Critics Association's Winter Press Tour. Stay tuned. Jacqueline, thank you for doing this. So, can you describe Robin, the character that you play in Flack?
4: Robin is a very high-level PR uh, rep uh, who is American, living in London, working for a major firm, who is kind of the go-to gal for mega crisis management <laughs> um, of an assortment of clients and. But also is a massive disaster in her own life. She can clean up anybody else's mess, but her own personal life and private life is just an unmitigated disaster on pretty much every level. Um, But she's really good at sort of the smoke and mirrors of it all. So she's good at making sure nobody ever really knows just how much of a mess she is. Um, And therefore, a lot of comedy and drama ensues on both the work and home life.
3: And the comedy and drama that ensue are both uh, fairly dark. I think. Oh, no, very, very yeah. dark.
4: Sorry, yes. My, I mean, I think it's hilarious. Um, but if you're offended easily, then, uh, I mean, maybe.
3: Yeah, there's a possible dead, naked body early on there's, in the first episode. Look,
4: I mean, we offend everybody equally, to be to be fair. We we, we don't single anybody out. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, our collective humor skews dark. We at Flack. <laughs>
3: What uh, So when you first read it, what was it that you enjoyed about it besides that dark humor?
4: It's smart, it's dark, it's funny, and it just felt like a completely different look at a world that I think people think they know a lot about mm-hmm. and a kind of character that we don't normally see as getting to be female as far as the, the flawed protagonist who, no matter what they're doing and how morally ambiguous they are you're still rooting for them, you know, and generally those characters tend to be male mm-hmm. in TV and film, um, and that is uh, a shift that I'm enjoying getting to be a part of, uh, and the writing is just so good. Ollie Lansley, who wrote these scripts, is just very, very talented and very twisted and dark and wonderful. I don't know if you going to get a chance to speak to him while you're here today, but uh it's just, it, it's just material that you're like, oh, I'm dying to say these words. they're fu- It's fun to do such beautifully written material.
3: The dialogue's really, really sharp. It really is. <laughs> um, you know, we're as you said, we're used to seeing that sort of, like, almost anti-hero mm-hmm. protagonist, you know, in male form since, mm-hmm. you know, Breaking Bad and The Speranos and Dexter <laughs> and, you know, a lot of shows. And you've been on... <laughs> Um, you obviously had like a really successful show yourself, mm-hmm. you know, with a different type of character, mm-hmm. uh, Suki. Uh, well, Suki was the damsel in distress. Right, exactly. She was
4: the prototypical damsel in distress, and the only way that that sh- the, the structure of that show depended upon her uh, being a victim a lot of the time and repeating the same bad choices.
3: <laughs> right. Over and over. <laughs> over, and and over and over again. again.
4: Otherwise, there's no show. <laughs> also, the fact that she's ultimately like you know outweighed by mythical superhero type creatures but yes so we're looking at a very different kind of uh female protagonist over here on flack
3: what and and on flack you and Stephen moyer your husband Uh uh, are also serving as eps um we were just having conversation about what would happen if my phone went off and it did did. um
4: In my head, I had money on it being your phone the, that went off, just so you know.
3: I think everyone in the room did. That's fair. <laughs> um, but you and Stephen are EPs, and it's um, – so when you look at this from a sort of business perspective, mm-hmm. I mean, as someone who has a lot of experience on mm-hmm. television, what do you feel like has changed about TV that has like made it more fertile ground to have a female character like this than maybe it would have been at a time when you know shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad – were presenting these really um, sort of dark male characters at the center of stories?
4: Well, I, I I'm not so much sure that it was the fault of any of the shows that happened to have really amazing male protagonists so much as I just think there is more of an appetite to see humanity for all of its ugliness and reality and in general not only telling stories about white men um so i feel like there's possibly always been the desire for it but for example you know you get a a a smaller network like pop and w uh, in the uk who are willing to take that risk with you to make the more interesting and less conventional and darker subject matter um and give you the creative freedom to really tell that story exactly the way you want to tell it. And, you know, that's really exciting. Um, you know, I think that as a as a business decision, people like business models that are proven. And I guess it's always scary to be the first to do something. Um, and that's changing. And I think that's a lot because of how we consume our content now. There's all of the sort of the streaming platforms and the newer channels and the different ways. It's not, you, you know, you you're, you have access to so much more, and it's not like some networks where there's you know there's only a couple of spots a season for a drama, so if the odds are yours probably won't get picked unless it's like a sure, sure thing. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's changed and is changing, and I think that's really exciting for everyone as far as both in front of the camera and behind the camera.
3: There is a moment watching uh, i don't want to spoil the beginning mm-hmm. of the first sure. episode for anyone but it's i mean it's pretty salacious there's like oh, a yeah. lot of drugs and yes near death experiences robin robin and,
4: cleans up other people's messes but she herself is you know um pretty clearly an addict that checks various addict boxes chemical and emotional
3: right <laughs> watching it it felt like it, it felt interesting because while it felt um you know real and dark and like it was pushing the envelope it also didn't feel like oh this is something that is somehow pushing the limits for what you could do on basic cable in the us it feels like very much you know in line with Mm -hmm. with the type of content that we thought so too (laughs) you put out there now i mean is that you guys were on hbo when you were doing true blood Mm -hmm. so i mean is that different the fact that there's there's broader appetite among multiple platforms for a story like this
4: oh it's very exciting i mean look the the network platforms that have very, very strict rules around content is, that's great, that's its own thing, and it just doesn't have anything to do with this kind of content. And this and it is exciting that there are more platforms where you're not having to censor, you're getting to make choices as far as how far you want to push the envelope, as far as what makes sense storytelling-wise and what makes sense creatively, as opposed to it being, oh, you can't do that you can't say that well sometimes that feels a little arbitrary now granted uh you know there are certain things that small children should not be hearing seeing or watching probably anything
3: on this show falls in that oh basket. absolutely
4: none of it <laughs> um you know but then you probably wouldn't you know want that's why flack is a 10 p.m thursday night show not a 6 p.m 7 p.m network show <laughs>
3: Not on in the family viewing hour. Not so much. Um,
4: and if your kids are still up at ten o'clock watching Flack,
3: <laughs> I
4: got I got nothing to say. But that's an interesting choice. Uh,
3: you've you've been in the business. Uh, I think everyone knows from a very young age. Yes. Um, do you have, as we sit in this room with your team, mm-hmm. um, do you have experience with? Uh, not, not obviously first-hand experience, but, I mean, have you seen people who operate in the sort of realm that Robin does and, and uh, you know, what the type of person that falls into that sort of line of crisis work?
4: I mean, honestly, and I'm really not just saying this, but my work and the kind of environments and people I have sought out to work with have been much more... Serious and creative and about the work, so i 'm not saying i've never seen any really weird shit, but that's not kind of the world that my career has inhabited, and those are not and that's not the sort of people that i've been surrounded by um, so i don't have a lot of first hand up close knowledge of what those sort of people are like, other than just hearing fun stories from other people. <laughs>
3: For her as a character, I mean, what is it about her that kind of drives her into what is obviously a sort of very difficult and line of work where you're dealing with the unexpected and the grisly? Well, I mean,
4: I mean, sort of psychologically, she and her sister grew up with an addict, mentally unwell mother who ultimately killed herself. And they are in their own separate ways sort of trying to fix the unfixable hole in both of their, you know psyches and souls, one sister creates this perfect family, and it's all very rigid and by the book, and the other one has made a career out of literally fixing other people's disasters. Are either of them happy? No. Not really. Um, that's, you know, there's there's sort of psychological fallout from the kind of childhood they had that isn't really fixable with the Band-Aid. Um, but, you know, it, it certainly makes you know, makes for someone being very good at the the thing they've decided to channel all of that obsessive energy into.
3: The sibling dynamic is really mm-hmm. interesting. Yes, um, it is. We were, <laughs> and it's not, you know, in a world of 500 TV shows, it's not something you see explored all the time on no. TV. What, um, you know, how did you want to approach that? And, you know, what did you feel like there was kind of to explore in there?
4: Well, I think a lot of, who people are is informed by where they came from and a lot of times in shows about people's professional lives you don't know or really see anything about their family of origin and because it's such a huge part of who everyone is no matter who you are everyone is walking around with their own baggage it's interesting to get these little glimpses into who she really was before she became this very slick well-dressed You know savvy guru of of pr and you know you see her her sister who is able to call her on her shit and who knows who she really is and they really and truly only have each other um you know i think that's quite fascinating as far as just getting getting to see a a more rounded picture of, of who this is and it also explains a lot of the choices she makes when you understand where someone comes from and Genevieve who plays my sister is so spectacularly talented and was just she and I just clicked immediately and it was one of those ones where it really felt like I'd known her my entire life and we don't actually even have that much on-screen time together we have a lot of phone calls <laughs> back and forth and we would do the phone calls for each other like you know live but it was just you know really wonderful to end up with a dynamic like that that's so important that felt so so real
3: um you and steven have worked on a bunch of projects together mm-hmm. you obviously met at work mm-hmm. i mean can you just talk about um i know you you have a feature that mm-hmm. uh, was at palm springs i think recently mm-hmm. that's to uh,
4: santa barbara not tomorrow it's a sunday another festival
3: What's been what's been you you guys's approach as far as what you want to take on business wise and, and working together?
4: Well, we have a production company um, that we formed with uh, Cerise Larkin and Mark Larkin, some friends of ours who are also a couple, and we have very similar tastes collectively. And it's a little random which things appeal to us and when and why, and but most of it comes down to good material and and strong writing and compelling stories. and But we don't really have any sort of hard and fast rules as far as things we definitely are, definitely aren't interested in. Because um, good writing is good writing, you know? And uh, that's sort of how I've always approached work, and that's sort of how we approach it as a company as well. And then also just, like, people that when you meet, you're like, oh, you're brilliant, I want to work with you, let's play together, you know? Because work should be fun.
3: How did... Uh... Yeah, I mean, there are obviously there are couples who do this together, and then there are couples who do this separately, Mm -hmm. or you know, one does one thing, one does the other. Mm -hmm. Um, As you your relationship developed from you know being a working relationship Mm -hmm. to being married, I mean, how did you guys come to decide that this was something that you wanted to pursue together?
4: Well, I think that a lot of actors. It's not that you grow bored of acting, but you want more challenges and have, you know, after you've been doing it a long time, a broader range of interest in the process of making the product that you've been making. Uh, Steve had always wanted to direct. He used to have a theater company when he was younger and had done a lot of that. Um, He directed a lot on stage, and he directed a bunch of True Blood. So as far as, like, the first you know one of the features that we we produced one of them was his his film the parting glass that he directed Um, and that was something that was a priority for us because he was he was ready to you know do it for us. I definitely want to direct at some point I haven't found the thing I I need to direct yet Um, you know and as far as just being actors that pay attention and care about the details of how a set works and how a production works producing is just a really natural sort of evolution as far as as far as both of us are concerned so it just sort of it grew organically
3: and this project is it's it's an international project mm-hmm. I mean it's a UK show that is was I guess you know sort of developed the play on you know in the UK and the us mm-hmm. um, how did how did you come to that and then also like what does it do creatively to have this be a you can imagine the story in LA or in New York but to have it be an American in London like what sort of creative element does that layer into it
4: well I mean for starters for the American audience I think the English world of PR celebrity I mean although not that different is probably a little bit new a little bit you know it's um But also, there's a lot about the humor of the show that is just so very British that you could make this show in, you know, we we, we toyed with at various points in in development turning it into an American show or turning it, just having it completely English and everyone being English and sort of ended up with a sort of somewhere in between. Because let's face it, PR and press are not local things anymore. Everything is international. Um, and so that ultimately felt like it made the most sense. But there's just certain kinds of jokes and humor and language that you just can't have in an American show because that's not how Americans speak. <laughs> and that was very specifically important to us. Um you know i do a very good impersonation of an american but i'm not <laughs> <laughs> and he's not and the rest of our the other half of our production team are not americans so there's something kind of uh delicious about getting to sort of uh dip into the 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 motherland of <laughs> of uh <laughs> of, of humor
3: right yeah, there's a telling moment, I feel like, in the beginning where uh, she picks up a uh, a tabloid, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's just a sports headline, but then mm-hmm. she does a line of coke, I think, right after yeah. she... Yeah. And that, and that sort of tabloidiness, like, there is a particular, like, shade of celebrity culture in the UK that you, you don't quite get here.
4: Honestly, I, I don't know. I'm not really an ex- <laughs> expert on tabloid culture. <laughs> um... But, you know, uh, I think the story point more as far as what we're saying about Robin and what we're sort of indicating is that she's, you know, she's yelling at him for being high and all this stuff, but she's really not in any – has no moral high ground there because – She's wants a fix too.
3: Right. After she's dealt with the <laughs> yeah. crisis, it's she's like, yeah, that's like, her way of blowing up steam.
4: Well, you know, she's got to show up uh, for work soon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's her coping mechanism.
3: Um, are you guys hopeful that this is something that could, you know, obviously you have busy schedules, both of you, but that this is something that, you know, if there's appetite for it, you could continue with? I
4: mean, this was conceived of as a limited series. Um, and it plays really beautifully as
3: such but you never know thanks again
4: thank you so much
3: miracle workers is a new comedy that premieres february 12th on tbs umbrella academy premieres on netflix february 15th daniel daddario and caroline framke Variety's tv critics discuss the two
0: so caroline this week you reviewed a new tbs sitcom called Miracle Workers, starring Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi. And I'm very curious what you thought of it, because I admit, even though I know it comes with a great pedigree, Simon Rich, uh, the creator of Man Seeking Woman, is behind it. It did look a lot to me like another show on the air right now, The Good Place. So I'm curious (laughs) how it differs, among among other things. Set it up for me.
1: Yeah, that's the inevitable comparison point. But watching it, honestly, I feel like the closest analog is weirdly Man Seeking Woman um, in the end. It's It takes a little bit to get going, which was kind of the same thing with The Good Place or any really high concept anything. Um, it is about a slacker god, played by Buscemi, um, who's created this sort of defective planet that no one likes, um, called Earth. <laughs> <laughs> very and, 2019. Earth exactly. Is no, it yeah. feels very fitting. Yeah. Um, but then basically he gets bored and decides he wants to destroy it. And one of his angels, I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see it. Um, the angels in this show are basically people who have died and then get randomly assigned to Heaven Inc. So it's a very bleak. <laughs> look so they're at. not
0: they're not there because of their good qualities. No. It's they're just at random. Okay, I see. Yep. Yeah,
1: they're basically just corporate worker bees making Earth run because God is sort of just wandering around his giant mansion doing nothing. Um, and so basically, one of the angels decides that maybe the Earth shouldn't blow up and makes a bet with God that if she can answer two people's prayers by the end of the week, then he has to keep it. And the prayers that she decides to try and answer are these two people who have a crush on each other and want to go
0: out. Oh, this is so not really (laughs) foregrounded in the marketing material at all. I'm very interested to see it now.
1: Yeah. And I'm not really allowed to tell you much else beyond that, but I can say that it is much It is very different from The Good Place in a lot of ways. It's not... It's serialized, but it's not quite as... um, I think it's a very contained story. Actually, TBS is calling it an anthology series, so I'm not sure what the second season of this, should that come, would look like. It might be following different angels, different planets, who knows. Um, But this story is self-contained, so by the end of the seven episodes, which I've seen all of the stories over, and we'll be on to the next thing. But there's a lot... There's a lot to recommend it for. Um, Simon Rich, as you mentioned, Create a Man Seeking Woman, which is a very uh, peculiar, it was, I should say, a very peculiar and specific show that nonetheless had a lot of very lovely, empathetic moments. And the show is the same. It's very, very weird. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but it does have these unexpected moments of real warmth that I really liked. And um, Daniel Radcliffe... Has so much fun in this. It's really fun to watch him do this. I think he should be doing so much more weird comedy like this.
0: He's really built for it. He seems to have an appetite for it, too. Um, And I'm interested that he, someone of his stature, someone who really at this point could write his own ticket thanks to the fame from Harry Potter is interested in doing kind of a quirky comedy on TBS. I think that speaks really well of him, in a way.
1: I think so, too. And he's really good in it, especially opposite Geraldine Viswanathan, who is, um, you might know her from Blockers. Of course.
0: Yeah, she was fabulous.
1: She was, I, I for my money, the best part of it. And she's really good in this one. They balance each other out really well. They work together to solve, solve these prayers. Solve is maybe a weird word for it, but in the end, it makes sense. And the ensemble's really good. There are some good guest stars, which you can expect, because Simon Rich used to work on SNL. Lauren Michaels is an exec producer, so they get some good people to come in.
0: I have a few guesses, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna try to spoil anyone's fun as to which SNL standbys show up.
1: Right. So I think it's worth checking out. I really liked it by the end, and uh, that premieres on the 12th. But something that premieres a little later in the week is something you looked at, and I'm really curious about this. It's been in the works for a long time, and that is Umbrella Academy on Netflix.
0: Yes, Umbrella Academy, which, as you well know, uh, is based on a comic book written by the rock star Gerard Way. I do well
1: know my Chemical Romance. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I think this got assigned to the wrong person because I do not have much of an affinity for them, but it's basically a steampunk superhero show about a family of supernaturally powerful children who are adopted by a mysterious oligarch and raised to kind of express their powers in the most extreme ways. Uh, they're presented with The opportunity to save the world as as, as the series begins. And the series follows their journeys towards accomplishing that while also skittering back in time and looking at the trajectories of their lives.
1: And it's got a really stacked cast.
0: Absolutely, yes. I thought the cast pretty much across the board did a wonderful job with material that looking at the backstory tended to be really strong. And in the present day was pretty weak. I think Ellen Page, who is kind of the lead and the biggest name in the cast, is given a pretty moving backstory, which is that she has grown up as the only person in this family who believes herself to totally lack powers and to not be special. And Mm -hmm. that is something that people can, like the best superhero stories, people can find things in it to which they relate. The present day, it's just, it's nothing we haven't seen before except that there's an extra gloss of attitude and oddity <laughs> packed on top of it, which seems which makes all the cliches all the more annoying because it's it's presented as though it's this incredibly fresh thing. Uh, Mary J. Blige shows up along with uh, Cameron Britton from Mindhunter. Hmm. They play a pair of kind of supernatural assassins. And that's kind of all I'll say about that. (laughs) So as to avoid spoiling, um, and also just because I'm not really sure I understand it. Um, So I do think this will find its audience. If this ended up being one of the Netflix shows that Netflix tells us gets 40 million viewers, I would in no way be surprised, both because of the strength of the property and because it's definitely distinctive in the landscape. But I missed kind of the straightforwardness of when those Marvel shows were good, They were really good, Jessica Jones season one being a good example, and were proudly themselves and not trying to amp up the quirk just for its own sake. And for that reason, I found it a bit of a frustrating watch.
1: Oh, well, that's a shame. But, you know, as we always say, there's more TV where that came from.
3: Last week and a half, showrunners, stars, and television executives have gathered in Pasadena for the TCA Winter Press Tour. Variety senior TV reporter Elaine Lowe recapped for us the goings-on. So Elaine, Netflix isn't presenting at this TCA, but it sounds like they were still sort of in the room in a sense, right?
2: Right. You've got these very traditional networks talking about traditional TV, but it sort of sounded like Netflix was top of mind for some of these network chiefs. In particular, FX CEO John Landgraf, who came with his usual data-packed PowerPoint presentation, which I, for one, was kind of geeked out about seeing for the first time in (laughs) person. Um, And, you know, he called out Netflix's very non-Nielsen-accepted viewership metrics. They had touted some time back that You and Sex Education were shows that were garnering something like 40 million household views. They later clarified to say that it was viewers who were seeing about 70% of an episode which is a little different than 40 million average viewers week to week. Uh, but he, he called out Netflix, and to some extent journalists too, for reporting those metrics as though they were comparable to Nielsen numbers. Um, you know, and he also was uh, pretty critical of Silicon Valley as a whole. I mean, some of the terms he tossed out, monopolistic, uh, they're endless money canons. Um, which it certainly I, I think is not totally illegitimate criticism when you look at the way Netflix is treated on Wall Street, say, compared to some of its legacy media peers. Um, but, you know, even though that Netflix data uh, got a lot of questioning, it's certainly not disregarded either, because separately when you look at CW chief uh, Mark Petowitz, he indicated that the fate of next season's um, next season of All-American may hinge on that Netflix data. Because All-American, of course, is this freshman drama. Um, It was not one of the ten CW shows that got picked up for an early renewal. And he said on stage this week that uh, um, he would be looking at some of the Netflix data to see how it performs on the out-of-season streaming market to see if they would pick it up then. So, you know.
3: CW obviously has an output deal with Netflix that they've had for a number of years. uh, Per Graph, one never forgets their first playing graph tca <laughs> <laughs> i think mine was when he coined peak tv so it's uh you know it's always a marker what um the streaming services in general i mean we've seen obviously this has been a huge point of discussion mm-hmm. in the industry with uh with the comcast announcement and obviously the moves the warner media has taken uh post at&t acquisition mm-hmm. to to launch a service um what what were some of the other points of conversation around the streaming competition?
2: Well, Landgraf says, according to his numbers, that there were 496 scripted original series on the air or online in 2018, and that's actually only like about a 1.8 percent bump from 2017. But when you take a closer look at those numbers. 160 of those shows were online shows compared to 117 in 2017, which is like a 37% bump. So most of that growth is being fueled by these online shows. So they're definitely not to be ignored, right? And then you saw a year-over-year decline from the broadcast and basic cable show numbers. Um, and then since 2014, by his research team's count anyway, um, you know, online shows have rocketed. That number has rocketed 385%, which is huge, especially when you compare it with the other categories. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, like you were saying, it's particularly interesting in 2019 given all these streaming platforms. You've got Apple. You've got whatever Warner Media is cooking up with their three different streaming services. And then, of course, Disney+, Plus, which is like the big question mark for late 2019, right? And there are still so many questions around them. And, of course, n- basically none of them were answered this week at all because we're all just waiting for Disney's Investor Day in April where Iger has promised more detail on April 11th.
3: We'll see if we actually get it. Uh, speaking of Disney, uh, Fox and ABC, the two old-school broadcast networks that are going to be most impacted mm-hmm. by Disney's acquisition of, uh, of Fox, uh, they both showed up at TCA this week. Uh, what, uh, what did Kerry uh, Burke and Charlie Collier, the two new presidents of those networks, have to say?
2: Well, Fox Entertainment's Collier says that he thinks that Fox, without its studio and everything, will be, quote-unquote, more nimble. He thinks that they're going to be able to do some risk-taking, um, that they'll be able to still, you know, finance their own productions and everything. Um, and, you know, they announced this deal with Gail Berman sidecar, and uh, it's, they're calling it a content development accelerator. Um, and Fox is going to own 100% of all the series that come out of that incubator, so he is actually seeing, uh, he's expecting a decrease in their licensed content as they invest more in their own productions, even though they don't have their own studio. Although also recall that, on that Fox lot, they're going to be leasing their studio space to Disney for the next seven years. So, you know, they still have that, their hand in production there.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And then with Carrie Burke, you know, the new ABC Entertainment head, she was sounding really bullish on the Oscars. And, you know, ratings haven't exactly been gangbusters for a lot of these award shows lately. But um, Burke says that she actually thinks this new hostless Oscars, this whole conversation going on with the controversy with Kevin Hart and everything, is driving conversation and... You know that's her take on it. That this is this is going to be even better. People are talking about it's it, right? generating buzz. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she, you know, she also said that you know three of the best picture nominees are are actually big pictures like Black Panther and Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, Star Is Born, which have all grossed uh, at least two hundred million dollars individually at the box office. And Black Panther leads the pack. I mean, obviously, it's a Marvel movie uh, being nominated for best picture. That'll be uh, you know that's a popular one.
3: We'll see if people uh, tune in to uh, watch uh, clips of popular movies that they've already seen play on the Oscar <laughs> telecast.
2: And she's also promised that it'll be kept to three hours. Three so. hours. Yeah, that's, that's what the we've promise. been told.
3: We'll hold them to it. <laughs> Elaine, thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an interview with comedian Kin Jong.